Welcome to God Pod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello and welcome to God Pod 28. And uh, here we are again. And uh, the summer is over, the autumn is here, and uh, the three usual people are here around the table. So, good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon for the 28th time. Exactly. And uh, Jane as well. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, We haven't got any guests today. It's just us. In this edition of GodPod, we'll be looking at the question of the sovereignty of God. Does God get what he wants all the time? Or does he have to stick with second best? Uh, We'll also be looking at uh, the issue of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the authority of the Church. Uh, Is the idea of uh, Scripture's supreme authority or sole authority uh, defensible? Or actually, is it the case that because the Church decided on the books of Scripture, uh, that it's the Church that has authority rather than the Scripture itself? So those are some of the tricky little issues we'll be looking at in GodPod today. Just a, a word of thanks to all of those of you who have emailed in. Um, we get l- quite a lot of emails in from all over the world, which is great uh, to know. But I, I'm also aware that quite a lot of them we're not going to be able to answer because there are just so many. So um, many apologies to those of you who do email in questions and uh, who uh, well, we don't get around to, um, to answering them. Just a, a word about that. It, it may well be that some of the ones you email in have been dealt with on earlier God Pods. And so I, what I'd suggest you do if you haven't listened to our uh, back catalogue of recordings. You might want to go back all the way to Godpod number one and work your way through. Um, but on the website, it tells you at each, each week what each uh, Godpod is actually looking at. So you might find some of those questions dealt with there. Or you might find that uh, the reason we're not dealing with it is because they're too hard and we don't know the answers. <laughs> in which case, I recommend you ask somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> or the other solution is to read Mike's book, which has got the answer to everything <laughs> in it. So um, there's just Cafe Theology, published by Alpha Publications. For six ninety nine. There you go. So today we are, um, we've got a couple of things that we've, we've um, uh, filtered out of the uh, many emails that have come our way, and um, a lot of them really interesting questions. But um, we're going to start with one that uh, came from someone in uh, New Zealand, a student at Otago University by the sound of it, uh, Jonathan Yong or Jong. And um, it's about the issue of uh, universalism and salvation and all of that. And what he says is this, having dabbled a wee bit in theology and having continuous conversations on the matter my friend and i are still rather in a rut on this inclusivism exclusivism universalism stuff don't worry if you don't understand that we'll come on to it in a moment yeah it appears to me but not my friend that there's a fairly straightforward argument for universalism universalism being the idea that everyone gets saved in the end and so the argument goes number one that god desires all to be saved and number two god is sovereign in other words what god wants god gets ultimately anyway Uh, number three all will be saved. But then again, as my friend points out, there seems to be a fairly straightforward argument against universalism as well, which is number one, uh, our response to the gospel has some role in salvation. Number two, uh, we have something like libertarian freedom. And number three, then there is a real chance that some human beings won't respond to the gospel in the right direction. And well, that's bad news, isn't it? So um, that's his dilemma, and he's trying to work out uh, what is the answer to this question of um, universalism. So I don't know who wants to um, uh, start on this one. Um, Mike, you've usually got something to say. About I'm, I'm usually the first one to j- jump in on these occasions, unless, unless stopped. Um, yeah, there's a Scottish 
theologian, a very good Scottish theologian called Tom Torrance, who has, I think, something really useful to say on, on this subject, uh, which is that there are two equal and opposite mistakes to make in this area. The first is to say uh, that God wants all people to be saved, therefore all people will be saved. And the other is to say some people will be saved, and therefore God wants only some people to be saved. Uh, and I think the problem with both of them, and there's actually the same mistake looked at from different angles, because they assume uh, that sovereignty means God gets his way. Um, and I'm not sure that that's actually the case. I think that is a projection of our kind of idea of what it is to be a good human boss, <laughs> projected to the nth degree onto God. You know, a good boss is the person who can get his way in the boardroom or whatever, uh, and God, therefore, being the best possible boss, always gets his way. And yet, I think we need to recognize that the very fact of sin shows that God does not always get his way. Uh, in the very earliest you know, in Genesis 3, God says, do not eat of this tree, and they do eat of this tree. God doesn't always get his way, and, and the um, problem of sin alerts us to that fact. So I think sovereignty is sometimes used in a slightly loose way, and it's actually a much more rich and kind of progressive narrative than we sometimes um, imagine. But doesn't um, isn't this still the sense that if... We are talking about a, a God who is ultimately, um, who ultimately will have the, the victory, which is what resurrection promises, that ultimately uh, he will win the battle over sin and death and evil and all the foes of mankind and so on. So that ultimately he does get his way. Ultimately he gets his way in the sense that his project for creation will not be thwarted injustice will not reign, death will not have the final word, mm. suffering will not continue forever. Um, so to that extent, yes, he, he will get his way. It's then a matter of who wants to be part of that. Mm. Mm. Uh, and he's, part of getting his way is not making people mm. go along with him. So you, so you say that when the scripture says that God desires all men to be saved, or all people to be saved, yes. as you would say, um, that's, an, that's a, an expression of God's desire. It's not necessarily an expression of actually what will happen. I think, I think that's right, because it allows for mm. um, genuine human freedom. Sure, yeah. And any, the problem with universalism, I mean, it, it may happen. It may be that everybody ultimately does choose to accept God, but we cannot prescribe that in advance, because that is to say actually human freedom... Mm. It's probably not really human freedom. Yep. I think the place where universalism looks most obvious is when you're looking at the, the scope of the work of Jesus, isn't it? That um, Jesus comes out to meet us and die for us before we respond in any way. It's God's reaching out to us, um, irrespective of our freedom. But then you also have to look at how that operates in relation to us, in that although that is now available for all of us, it still isn't forced on us. Even after the resurrection, it is possible to doubt that Jesus is um, the full revelation of God. As happens at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Indeed, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think God's sovereignty is a broken sovereignty. Uh, that's what happens at the fall, is that God's sovereignty is, is, is denied in an extraordinary way. Um, creatures choosing that which God does not choose for them. Um, 
wanting for themselves what he doesn't want for them, death inclusive. Uh, and then there's the whole business of um, it's a kind of re-established kingdom. That's what the mm. re-established sovereignty. That's what the kingdom of God is. Mm. It's, it's God re-establishing his sovereignty. But even there, it's um, something that's breaking into the world, not something that's coextensive with the world. Mm. Uh, and only on the last day, in the book of Revelation, do they say, now, now the kingdoms of the earth have become the kingdom of our God. Mm. That's when God's sovereignty is, is mm. in a sense, complete. And that's different from a kind of determinism, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Which, which, I mean, the idea that basically everything that happens is because God willed it and, and every single tiny detail of, of life is down to the will of God. And, and you, you get that in a lot of Christian writing and spirituality in, in the past. And... and um, and it's often related also in the, the, the kind of idea you often find in popular spirituality of, of saying, well, God has a plan for my life. Now, in one sense, I kind of say, yes, that's true. Um, but there's another sense in which I think that can be an unhelpful way of thinking about it, because sometimes we can think that means God has a plan for my life. Therefore, every step of my life has been predetermined all the way along. And that my role in life and guidance is all about finding this secret plan that God has up his sleeve somewhere um, for me to follow the blueprint yes. and uh, I think that, that that conveys to me a slightly odd idea of God that God is somehow you know he has this secret blueprint for my life but he's pretty reluctant to show me what it is mm. and, and, yes. and, and I've got to somehow guess at it and that uh, can be a very anxiety driven yeah. exactly and it can also be quite worrying if, if I if I think well what, what if I got it wrong yes. uh, I make it I make a decision and it goes horribly wrong and I suddenly oh blimey I've, I've really messed up now because I've gone off the tracks yeah. is there any way back on the tracks and I suppose this this idea of, of God's sovereignty which means that he does get his way in the end but there are all kinds of different routes that he can get to that way. And he gives me the freedom as to whether I want to be part of it and in what way I want to be part of it. Uh -huh. uh, that seems to be a much more creative view of sovereignty where, where actually my decisions are taken seriously. They do contribute in some way towards what will finally be one day in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, what I do now matters for that yes. direction. And I have, uh, and, and it does mean that if I do make a mess of one aspect of my life or the other aspect of my life, there is always the possibility of redemption, that God can take me from that place and weave even that mistake into, in some way, As he does with the all the great Christians that one looks back on. I, I, I'm always comforted by St. Paul, who couldn't have gone more wrong to begin with in relation to Jesus, mm -hmm. could he, mm -hmm. persecuting Jesus' followers, and who becomes such a key part of mm. God's sure. um, plan for the consummation yes. of the kingdom. But I also think it's very important um, when you're talking about the sovereignty of God not to separate that from God the creator. Why would God set the creation up like this in the first place um, with the possibility of real free agents who can cooperate or, or work against God if he didn't want it to be that kind of a creation? Mm. If he had a, a neat blueprint um, for everybody's life all along, why make mm. us <laughs> such mm. wayward and, and um, fallible creatures? And in what sense would we be creative? Yeah. And surely to be part, to be in the image of the creator is to be a creative. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that is is forging in dialogue with God for sure and under him in all, you know, in all sorts of senses but nevertheless having a real role in, in forging our own characters our own dances our own roles and our own um. yeah and I guess going back to this idea of God having a plan for our, our lives I mean I think that there is a sense in which God has a plan for my life which actually is that I that I am conformed to the image of Christ that I that I become holy to use that that 
Um, is that shorthand, really? Exactly. That's what yeah. it says in one Thessalonians four four. I think it is. You know, this is God's desire that you become holy. That's God's will for my for my life. Now, there's all kinds of routes that he might take, and the different things that happen to me, and the different things choices that I make can be woven into and can be used to to, to advance that process whereby I am shaped into the image of Christ. But that's ultimately God's will for me, but God's total design for me, rather than that I might become a banker or a bus driver or whatever else it might be. Now, we can pray about those things and ask for God's guidance as to which one would be the best arena in which we might grow in holiness, but it seems to me that's the main thing God is driving at in our lives, rather than trying to micromanage every single Mm. detail of of what we do. And when you grow into the image of Christ, as we grow into you will not be less Graham. You won't become a robot. Um, So that part of God's sovereign will for us is that we should be the most that we're able to be. Yeah. Which um, is the least robotic. In, in Exactly, which is the most personal, yes, because God is absolutely personal in all yes. his relationships. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This, this question links into another email. We had, again, another interesting um, email from someone called uh, Dennis Sparks from Atlanta in Georgia in America. See how widely God Pod is listened to around <laughs> the world. And uh, he relates this also to the, the same issue, the, the, the sovereignty of God. And... Um, he, uh, he he refers back to one of the earlier Godpod discussions where we talked about a, an email that came in from from a woman who'd who'd gone through quite a difficult time in her life and uh, who was wondering why God did nothing to help her. And um, uh, Dennis's point is that I think we were saying at that time that, well, he's suggesting that you know that's not the way God's power worked, um, but he's making the point that there were very clear times in Scripture where God does use His power to stop things happen, uh, stop things happening like the book of Daniel and, and so on, is what he cites. So I guess there's the question of, you know, in the arena of the sovereignty of God, um, okay, it's one thing to say, well, God doesn't use his power like that, but why does, it, why does God seem to intervene at some points uh, and not at others? Um, it's kind of back to the problem of miracles in a way, which is always the, you know, the problem of, um, you know, the, the tsunami happens, and uh, someone is miraculously, it seems, saved from death by clinging onto a bit of wood or something, and, and then they give thanks to God for their their being saved from this event. But that's slightly problematic because, uh, you know, if, if you know the tsunami is part of God's world, and you know, if it came from God in the first place, as some people would argue, can you can you argue that way? So I guess there's this question of of the particularity of God's working. Why does God seem to intervene at certain points and not others? And if he can intervene at certain points, why doesn't he intervene all the time? And if he can find you a parking space when you pray for it, why can't he stop the Holocaust? Which is the classic kind of statement of it. And I think that is a genuine problem for a lot of a lot of people. Which is why David Jenkins didn't want to believe in the resurrection yeah. as a physical event, because he thought if God could do that there, then why doesn't he yeah. stop stop the Holocaust exactly. or whatever That's it right. might yeah. be? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I suppose my, my thoughts on it are, um, are that we have to kind of see miracles or God's intervention at particular times, not as, uh, as sort of isolated events, but we have to see them, I mean, to use a technical term, a sort of theological term, we have to see them eschatologically. In other words, we have to see them as signs pointing to something else. Um, and so that when we pray for something and God answers that prayer, Whereas someone else prays for something, or maybe even the same thing, and God doesn't seem to answer that prayer. How do we, how do we understand it? And it seems we, we have to understand it in this way, that 
that if um, it's as if you know if, if God were to intervene all the time in a very direct way and were to constantly stop bad things happening and 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 you know make things happen the way we want them to do the kind of order of creation would be broken and that or, that order would not be present at all um it would be as if that was entirely suspended and the world would become a thoroughly unpredictable place uh same time if god did nothing if god never intervened in any special way within a fallen world we might conclude that actually god doesn't care for us anymore um so it's as, it's as if that you, you've got these two two poles that have to be satisfied one is sort of preserving the the order of the universe where if i do certain things certain things will happen uh, even if those things are bad i need to get there needs there is a sense of responsibility that i have and so that you know, it's it, so if god would intervene every single time to stop a, an accident happening when a car is going along the road and about to hit a, a child if it says that would be completely suspending the whole kind of um you know the the choices that we have uh, suspending the rules of or the, the the way the universe works and suspending the the way that we we operate in terms of responsibility but if god never did anything differently we would conclude that god had given up on his world and so it seems to me it makes some kind of sense that god intervenes at particular points to reassure us that he is there and cares and is still interested in his world but that these are signs of the new heaven and the earth that is one day going to come come about and so they're kind of little signposts rather than the thing itself it's a rather long answer but <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I, I think it's I, I agree but I, I think part of that also is it wouldn't be good for us constantly to shield us from the consequences of our own corporate actions yeah um if we are to grow up in any way and to be responsible beings the way he made us to be, then we cannot be completely shielded. Yeah, which is why God doesn't intervene every single time something bad is about to happen to us. Yeah, but I think I want to say two completely contradictory things at the same time. One is that it's not not surprising. No, Jane, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> One is that God never wills bad things to happen to people. Yeah. A child getting run over is never the will of God. Exactly. Um, but also that that doesn't that also doesn't mean that if we prayed hard enough, God would always give us what we yeah. wanted. Yeah. I, I've I've been caught, as I suppose lots of people have, in in um, very destructive prayer spirals where uh, people felt that if only we could pray hard enough, we could avert some yeah. personal disaster. And and if we didn't avert it, then then we were left with a terrible sense of guilt and failure. Um, and I don't know how you hold together. That, that we are required to pray and to believe that God is powerful and, and does will our good, and yet sometimes we will not get the answer that we look for to prayer. And, and part of that is that God's sovereignty is um, successfully opposed, isn't it? In, at least successfully in, mm. in the short term. Um, one thinks of the book of Daniel and uh, the time when Daniel's praying and um, St. Michael arrives and says, sorry, I'm late. I got held up by the Prince of Persia. Yes. <laughs> but your prayers helped me get through. Um, now, that seems to me quite a helpful glimpse into some of what's going on, most of which we don't know, see, or have any idea about, really, uh, behind the scenes. Um, a, that God's will is opposed 
by and not just by human beings, but by other forces um, that we don't often see or have any knowledge of. Um, and B, that nevertheless, what we do can make a difference within that realm. And, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's kind of a, a way of, you know, is the glass half empty or is it half full? Because you can kind of say, well, why doesn't God intervene on every case? Um, and I suppose you ask that question if you think that everything happens because it, God wills it. And if you don't have the kind of idea you've been explaining, Mike, about the sovereignty of God being in some way broken... But if that is the case, and we are in a fallen world where evil has entered into the world like a virus and has made the whole thing not work the way it should be, the amazing thing is that God, on occasion, does give us signs of his grace and love and that he is continually uh, there and will one day bring about the resurrection of all things. And, and so, but That's not a great help if you happen to be the person who's no. not experiencing sure. God's... No, no. I wonder if I could rec recommend a book not written by any of us. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it worth <laughs> bothering with? Um, <laughs> I think so. It's okay. called God on Mute. And it's yeah. by Peter Pete Gregg, Gregg yeah. um, who is somebody who knows a lot about prayer and the effectiveness of prayer, having founded the 24-7 prayer movement. And it's a very compelling and helpful book, I think, because mm. he talks both about the power of prayer and also about the serious hard, hardship of prayer unanswered in a case very close to his own heart. Absolutely. I, I read that book over the summer and thought mm. it was very, very good. And one of the best things I've oh, read. Oh, maybe it was you that recommended it to me. Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> We're not going to have another what I read over the summer session no, no, where that, I have that. to say, you know, well, some comic or other. No, we don't want to know what <laughs> so, you read, Mike. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so a God on Meet by Pete Gregg, a very good book on unanswered prayer. But um, Okay, well, we've had a bit of a counter around that one, and um, I'm sure we'll return to the sovereignty of God at some other point because it's something that is of perennial interest. Did you want to say anything about, else about that, Mike, or are you, are you, are you done? I did, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, well, that's... So, well, have to say we can always insert one. it back in, exactly. I guess. I might like to disagree with Mike's use of the word broken about God's sovereignty. Okay. Because I think I would prefer to say that God's sovereignty is displayed in the way things are because this is... Because God actually shows his sovereignty in letting us be free. That is what God designed creation for. And that has consequences that look like brokenness. Um, but I'm not sure that I'm happy with the word broken in relation. To yeah, I mean, I, I take the point and I agree that you have to frame God's sovereignty in, in a way that shows that our freedom, even when we abuse it, is nevertheless a God-given yes. thing and, and something that is, and is part of what he is working yes, for. Yeah. On the other hand, I would hesitate to talk about God sharing his sovereignty at Ashfields. Oh, um, yes, I, yes, absolutely. <laughs> do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean, yeah. Well, we have um, uh, another question, which uh, Jane is going to uh, read out for us. This is a question from somebody called Doug Jones. Um, a very interesting question. He was listening to a good Roman Catholic apologist recently who's making a, an excellent case against the doctrine of sola scriptura. He was arguing that it wasn't defensible from within the Bible and that as the church authorised the Bible itself, it's natural to assume it still has authority over or at least alongside the Bible. He believed the word of God included oral teaching as well as written scripture. So Doug is suggesting that we could help by explaining a little bit about what the doctrine of sola scriptura means, which seems to me a job for you, Graham, as a Reformation scholar, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and what the various viewpoints are for and against it. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, sola scriptura is the, it's, obviously it simply means, it's a Latin phrase for scripture alone. And uh, there's a big debate at the Reformation period as to 
basically where authority lies within the Christian church. Does it lie in uh, the church's teachings, um, or does it does it lie in um, the scriptures? And uh, sola scriptura was a, a sort of slogan that was used by many reformers in the 16th century to to encapsulate the the um, the position that it's sort of scripture alone um, that we go to for authority. Now there there are different versions of the sola scriptura um, argument. Uh, one might be described as the uh, sole authority of scripture which is that the only authority within the Christian church is the Bible. There is no other authority alongside that at all. It is Scripture alone. Um, the other might be described as the supreme authority of Scripture, which is a slightly different one, which is to say that there are a number of authorities within uh, Christian thought and life to which you go to try and resolve a certain issue, doctrinal or ethical or whatever it might be. For example, Scripture, the teaching of the church, um, the exercise of human reason, um, experience, um, the voice of prophecy, or whatever it might be. Uh, but out of all of those, uh, they all have a certain degree of authority within the, the church, but out of all of them, the supreme authority is Scripture. And uh, those are two slightly different positions, I think, that, 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 that says that only Scripture, you don't listen to anything else, that human reason or thought or the voice of prophecy or the church's tradition is actually of no use at all it's just scripture we listen to uh, or is it the other position that it's um scripture is supreme out of a number of different authorities that that um are meant to sort of coalesce and i suppose i think probably most um uh, protestant christians would probably hold to the second of those which is the, the idea of the supreme authority of scripture rather than the sole authority of scripture and i think although scriptura sola clearly has a sort of the sole word in it um it often does i think describe um that that idea and uh so that's something about what it what it means i guess it, arguments for it um I think that the idea of the supreme authority of Scripture gets us quite a long way because it, it says that it's not when we're making decisions about Christian faith, um, it's not enough just to go to proof texts from the Bible. Uh, we have to think about how the Bible has been read and interpreted over the years w within the church. And, and we have a conversation, if you like, between ourselves and those people who've taught the Bible and thought about it and developed the church's teaching uh, over we many years. We ignore the people who've gone before us mm. as if they've got no wisdom to share or like, exactly. to, like to offer. Yeah. yeah, which is what we do when we read the creeds, for example. Mm. Because what the creeds are, a number of Christians get in together and think, well, what, what, what is the, the summary of the, of the teaching of Scripture? The creeds are not themselves, um, you know, you don't find the creeds in the Bible, but they are sort of helpful summaries of the teaching of Scripture. Now, you might come up with other, other creeds, but those are the creeds that the Christian churches decide, well, that's what we teach. That's what we think the Bible means. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you'd think the Bible means something else, um, but that's not what the Christian church believes. So, um, so it seems to me there is still a place for tradition. There is still a place for the church's teaching within our discovery of truth and our um, uh, approach to it. But I think what the doctrine of supreme authority or sola scriptura understood in that sense says is that the church's teaching always is correctable by scripture, that one can always appeal to scripture um, at times even against the church's teaching. Mm. And so the church, church's teaching is, is fallible in the sense that it, it we, we can get it wrong. And looking back over the history of the Christian church, it's there been many times when you can see, well, actually, in, in retrospect, yes, the church did get it wrong. Mm. Um, and it's preserving this sense that, that the church needs something outside of itself in order to hold it true 
to the God that it believes in. Now, if it's just the church itself deciding on its own teaching, it's quite likely that we will we can go in all kinds of directions and get ourselves in a real mess, which is why you need something outside the church to be able to appeal to, to say, well, actually, have we got it right or have we got it wrong? And, and part of that is to say that ultimate authority, of course, lies in Christ, not in any of the thing, other things that we've been talking about. Uh, and there's this, something historical about that revelation. Um, if, if we believe that he entered history and lived a human life and died a human death and was raised, uh, then there is something normative about what he was like when he did that mm-hmm. for our understanding of God. Uh, and that therefore, what you, the reason that scripture takes priority over all the other good and honest people who've been wrestling um, to be faithful to to Christ in their own generation is that these people were eyewitnesses of the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something historically given and final about that because they saw it and we are dependent upon them. Or at least we're very close to those who saw it. Or we're very close to yeah. it. Or yeah. within or a circle that, that was correctable by yeah. those That's right. who were eyewitnesses. Yeah. Which is why it's not actually completely fair to say that the church decided what would be in the Bible mm. because the, 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 the Christian centuries were, which were forming what we call the canon of Scripture now, the, the books that form the Bible, felt themselves to be very much under the authority of that particular mm. witness to Jesus Christ mm. and his coming. And that was one of the key reasons for deciding what was an authoritative book. And what yes, wasn't. was it in a position, was it past, did it come from the apostolic circle? Absolutely. And was it a position to give us accurate historical information? Well, it's interesting historically how, how the canon came into being, because people often ask, well, who decided who was in the, what was in the Bible? And there isn't actually a council that decided no. it. And there isn't, wasn't a simple process. It was just over time, certain books came to be recognized as encapsulating apostolic teaching in other words core christian teaching and certain books were recognized as not to have that and that's how really how the canon emerged it's why it's why it took so long to to kind of agree a canon and it took a very long time to to do that but i think that's related to the point about about i mean is it is the church over scripture because it because it somehow recognized these 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 books and somehow conferred authority upon them and it seems to me that doesn't quite follow because it seems to me that once the church has recognized certain documents to hold apostolic power and apostolic authority and therefore to a certain extent sort of divine authority, um, it's as if the church at that point has to step back and say, we've not conferred authority on these books, we've recognized an authority they already possess. Yes. Um, by virtue of their apostolic character, by virtue of their closeness to the circle around Jesus or around the, the story of the, uh, of the Old Testament. And it's these, and to these texts that we therefore bow. Yeah. Yeah, and by right. virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit has guided us to use them. I think one wants to talk about yeah, sure. um, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the formation of, mm. of the canon as in, as in the bringing to birth of the yeah. first church. Mm. That's right. And I think in, in recognizing that, I think what the church was doing was it was recognizing or gradually coming to realize that in these texts these texts carried a uh, an authoritative dimension that the other texts didn't and it's a little bit like um and it's not that they were saying that you know these texts somehow came into being in some magical way um or or that you can't read anything else yeah absolutely yes and it's uh, i think the, the most helpful analogy i've heard for the idea of you know how the scriptures you know can be authoritative even though they're human human documents in one sense you know St Paul presumably wrote his letters in one sense just like you and I write our letters I don't think he was sort of in some trance well, I don't think he used the word processor 
No, you didn't. No. You did not quite. No, exactly. He didn't have Windows and Word. Um, o2. That's right. <laughs> o35 or what it was. But, um, but it's the analogy of, of, of a document. I mean, if you can imagine a um, maybe a boss with a secretary, and that secretary knows the boss's mind because he or she has worked with this boss for years and knows the, the, the boss's mind really very, very well and writes a letter as if it was from the boss. Now, it's, it's, it's okay, let's say it's a female secretary, but, you know, it's her writing. It's not. Okay, well, okay. Say, it's a, say it's a male secretary, right? Well, okay. With a female boss. Yeah, making a female boss. Okay, tell you right. So, <laughs> that's what it's like to work at the Paul's Theological exactly. Society. Exactly, so, that's right. So the, the secretary <laughs> writes the letter, um, and it's his writing. He composed it, he chose the words, he writes it. But then when the boss signs the letter, it becomes his it carries his weight, it carries his authority. So you can envisage a situation where a, a, something is written by one person, but it still carries the authority and the weight of someone else. Now, I, that's, that's maybe a helpful analogy to think about the authority of Scripture, that it's clearly written by human authors, um, but because, it, because those writings express the mind of uh, of of god in a in a unique way they they somehow also can carry his authority in the same way that a letter can be that's written on behalf of someone else do you and find that works that works quite well and and uh, but one of the things that always strikes me when one's looking for example at um athanasius who's one of the people in the 4th century who draws up one of the early lists we have of what what christians should consider to be the authoritative books one of the things athanasius is looking at is how they have been used. These are the books that have brought people to God. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a particular, I mean, it's not to say that people haven't been helped by other kinds of books, but overall, looking at all the people who were listening to scripture and, and worshipping God, um, these were the books that were most consistently used so that, that, so that you get a sense of God's character shaping a people in response to those words mm. in a very particular mm. kind of way. I think the other analogy that I find quite helpful is, is that Oliver Donovan uses in his book on the 39 Articles, but the difference between the map and the terrain. Mm -hmm. Uh, The church offers us a very useful map, and church teaching and the creeds and everything offer a very helpful map um, to the terrain, and you need to use the map, otherwise you could easily get lost. Mm -hmm. But if there were a discrepancy between the map and the actual landscape then you've got to change the map not the landscape mm. <laughs> um, sure. and in yeah. that way i think you know, yeah, that's also like scripture yeah. is yeah. is the terrain in that way very good so well we've um, come to the end of our uh, god pod 28 and um thank you for listening and uh, we'll be back again soon so thank you mike thank you and jane thanks and uh, we will see you again shortly that was god pod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.